Well, good morning again. That was very hearty. Thank you. Uh, If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. Today, we're pushing forward all the way to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. This is our ninth week in our For the Love series going through the book of John. We're doing this alongside our sister church in Austin, Mosaic. Uh, Will you stand for the reading of God's word? It's going to be a special day if you're one of those pre-millennials or millennials that brought your paper Bible. Follow along John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken or prayed these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they withdrew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. You say here in John that if we believe in you, Jesus, the Son of God, that in believing we'll have life in your name. So help us. We're asking you to help us to, to not perish or languish in in unbelief and help us to not believe in anything less than who you truly are. Amen. John's gospel was the last of four eyewitness accounts written in the first century. There is no argument that of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that John was the closest to Jesus personally. John wrote this last of the four. So as an old man, an old man, while the other three gospel accounts had already been circulating, John was very purposeful and deliberate and passionate about every detail he put into this gospel account. And what John captures on top of that 
is how deliberate and intentional Jesus was about everything he did and said, especially in these days leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. For instance, verse 1, they crossed the brook of Kidron. I didn't know until recently that the brook Kidron was actually a stream, a brook, that flowed right out of the temple. And this being Passover week, it would have been red with the blood of Passover sacrifices. This was deliberate by Jesus to go the night before his crucifixion, the night where he would shed his blood and lead his disciples into a prelude, a foreshadowing of his own suffering. And then we get from verse 1 down to verse 2, and Jesus takes them to this special place, the Garden of Gethsemane, a place where only he and his disciples and the one who would be used by God to fulfill the prophecies about the betrayal of the Messiah, this place that only they knew about. Jesus was very intentional and deliberate. Now, throughout the whole book of John, we've seen Jesus deliberately asking questions that he already knew the answers to. And each time it was to intentionally show us something greater than just, you know, merely the answer to that particular question. Now here in our passage are these 11 verses of, the first 11 verses of John chapter 18. We have not one, not two, but three questions by Jesus. I had to go a little LeBron on you there. Uh, Each of these three questions Jesus intentionally asks to lead us into a truth, to underline an important Christian doctrine. And so that's how we're going to go through our passage, and that's how I'm going to teach through these 11 verses, by, by order, the first and the second and the third question, and we'll capture what Jesus is intentionally, deliberately, passionately showing us about divinity, liberty, and finally, death. So we're going to start at the top. We've just been airdropped into this really awkward scene, casting a few different groups of people. First, we have the the Roman soldiers. ESV that we read says a band of Roman soldiers. This would have been uh, a Roman cohort. A cohort of soldiers was was hired out, usually a thousand soldiers, sometimes as few as 200. So let's just say it was 500 Roman soldiers. Also being cast into the scene, the the temple officers. Now, this was very rare. Roman soldiers and Jewish temple officers would never have been together fighting for the same thing unless you have an unusual character that threatened the influence of both. And that's who we have here. The third person, we have the entity we see cast in the scene is Jesus, and then his disciples, and then finally his betrayer. So that sets the scene. We're going to start with what Jesus wants us to see about his divinity. Divinity. We're going to work really slowly through verses 4 through 6. And the reason why we need to go really slowly is that so often in John, we can miss the very meaning of what's being said if we don't slowly consider what is being said, especially in its original languages. So one at a time, verse 4, it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do y'all seek? Or 
do you seek? Why would Jesus, it says he knew all that would happen to him. Why would he know all that would happen to him? The short answer is because he's God. He's divine. He has eternally coexisted in the perfect presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God. Jesus has sovereign knowledge. He knows all that would happen to him. This is the doctrine of divine omniscience. God knows all. Jesus is God. So Jesus, knowing all that would happen, begins with this question, whom do you seek? Again, He asks this question not to get answers about information he doesn't already have access to, but to lead us into understanding something that he already knows by divine omniscience. And he asks them, whom do you seek? Again, he knew who they were seeking, and he knew more than they knew who he was. He knew that they didn't know who he really was. He knew that they were seeking a man. Maybe some sort of revolutionary, a man that that was from Nazareth, way up north. You know, we hear a lot of people cause problems up there. They were seeking, in their opinion, a man who had allegedly, you know, performed a few miracles. And so they come with this big group of people in the middle of the night. And they said, "Who, who, he says, who do you seek? And they were looking for this guy from Nazareth. See, they couldn't comprehend that they had come to apprehend the very Son of God in the flesh. And that's just who he is. As he himself says, verse 5, they answered him, We seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. This is where our English translation really breaks down. You might see, I'm going to invite you to look in your own footnotes in your own Bible that when he responded in verse 4, I am, there is no personal pronoun that was given in the original Greek. He didn't say, I am him, I'm Jesus. He simply said, I am. Now, I'm of the persuasion that people should be dignified by personally being referred to in the way they request. So if your mama named you Joseph Paul, but you tell me to call you JP. Unless I have special permission from you, I need to call you JP. It's a dignifying thing if you're asking me to call you that. Now, I need to work on that if you know me. But how much more do we need to grant Jesus his personal pronoun that he prefers? In this case, none. He simply says, I am, period. No pronoun. Not I am he, but I am. There's no ambiguity in what Jesus is claiming in saying this. He's saying, I am that I am. He's saying, I am the God of Israel. I am Yahweh. He's using the sacred Jewish name, for God Almighty, in self-reference. This 
is blasphemy or divinity. This is either a sinful man claiming to be God, or it is a divine God-man proclaiming his true identity. There's no ambiguity in what Jesus is claiming, but listen as we go forward. There's also no ambiguity according to what happens and what John records in the effect of these two simple words. Verse 6 is where Jesus' true identity is not simply stated, but demonstrated. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Over 500 men fell to the ground. Jesus is the great I am. He's God. This is the same person who spoke a few millennia before that we have recorded in the book of Exodus, spoke out of a burning bush to Moses, said, I am that I am. Except now he's put on a flesh coat of humanity and he's speaking and his voice is still resounding. This reminds me of one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord Yahweh is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. We could add here the voice of the Lord Yahweh, Jesus, cuts down a cohort of 500 fierce Roman soldiers with the sonic boom of two simple words of self-proclamation, I am. He's powerful. He's God. They didn't know who they were seeking. That's the point. Who do you seek? They didn't know. And even now, Jesus is asking us the same question. Who is it really that you're seeking? Put your church clothes on, sit in your church chair. God knows your heart, and he's leading you by asking you, whom do you seek? Some people die and perish for not seeking Jesus, the Son of God, in any sort of way at all. But the more common thing, especially here in Texas, is for people to perish and die by seeking Jesus, the man, the historical figure from Nazareth, the great teacher, the guru, the the uh, vending machine Jesus, the give me what I want now genie Jesus, the less than son of God Jesus, perish by seeking the wrong Jesus. He's either God, who he says he is, or he's not. And if he's not God, then he's not good. He would be a liar. As C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, classic book, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You make your choice. Either this, was, this man was as, and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or 
you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have chosen to accept the view that he was and is God. You see, the painful reality that was taking place in the garden that night is the same painful reality that's gravely common today. That many people seek Jesus, but not in true worship. Not for who he truly is, but for something less than he is. Jesus says, I am that I am. He doesn't say, I am that you want me to be. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the question to you is today, will you choose to seek him for who he is and worship him in his mysterious divinity? Now, as we move to Jesus' next line of questions, we'll see that Jesus wants us to move from beholding his divinity to seeing in him, number two, our liberty. Our liberty. Now, I can only imagine what these soldiers must have been feeling as they tried to pick themselves up off the ground and to make sense out of why one man's two words totally cut them down and flattened them. But they didn't have time to make sense of it because here, here goes Jesus with some more questions. Whom do you seek? And I can imagine them saying, uh, Jesus of Nazareth? Is that the right answer? And Jesus answered, verse 8, and I can... Imagine them bracing for impact. I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. See, this echoes the famous line that Moses spoke, showing Jesus is the greater Moses. Let my people go, Moses said. Jesus has the authority forever and ever and ever to liberate by saying, let these men go. Go. In verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken in a prayer right before. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. See, as John says here in verse 9, Jesus' words, let these men go, was a fulfillment of the promise of his prayer from the previous chapter, the high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. But it's also a fulfillment of his promise from our chapter last week when we went over Matthew or John chapter 10. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now that's a promise that silences the devil trying to accuse you in your life. No one will snatch them out of my hand. When he says here in verse 8, 
let these men go free. The words he literally speaks in Greek was, let these men be pardoned, forgiven, released. He's saying, take me instead. Or if you like the Hunger Games, he's offering tribute. He's saying, take me, liberate them. Jesus came for liberty, not for conquest. The Jewish guard there that day and the, the Romans didn't quite understand this. They, they didn't have a paradigm for a man who could have all this influence and have zero power of the sword that he was wielding. They didn't get it, but Peter, Jesus' number one draft pick disciple, didn't get it either. Because he just starts swinging his little gladius, his Roman short sword. And it's a good thing that dude didn't have any aim. Because Jesus would have had a bigger mess on his hands. Of course, he probably could have cleaned that up too. But we know from Luke's gospel account that Jesus took dude's ear off the ground and just put it back on and it was restored. I mean, that's more powerful than using a sword. Healing. See, no one understood that Jesus came to rule the world not by taking others captive, but by granting liberty to the captives. That's what he came to do. See, they didn't have a paradigm for that because that's never happened before. All the rulers and conquerors and revolutionaries in history have come to power by taking power. It's almost like, how would there be another way? Until Jesus, he comes to power by giving it away. In fact, our Psalm 29, back to my favorite psalm, one of my favorite psalms, it talks about the fearsome, holy power and majesty of God, and his voice cuts down cedars, and it's more scary than hurricanes, and, and then it ends with a really strange and almost seemingly incongruent line. It says, the Lord gives strength to his people. So how does Jesus ascend to power? He chose to do so by giving liberty to others. Or as he says himself in Mark 10, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gives liberty to people like us who can't earn it for ourselves. Now, maybe you've tried to perform your Christianity and uh, earn your liberty. Maybe you've tried to self-actualize your faith, practice mindfulness, whatever. For your sake, I hope sincerely that you've failed as badly as I've failed at finding your own liberty on your own. Here's my story. I I remember what it felt like to be a slave to sin. I I mean, I would have probably even articulated that that way. Like, I, I feel like it's like I'm a slave or something. As a young man, I remember what it felt like. And this was before I was ever exposed to the Bible or the concept of slavery Uh, being in bondage to sin. This is before I heard anything about liberty and freedom that Jesus gives us. I I knew I was a slave. I I earnestly tried to be a good boy, to be a good Catholic kid. I, I really did 
try to treat young women with respect, but I sure didn't. I couldn't fix myself. And so I was invited to a student-led campus ministry at my high school, and I learned that my, my little slavery issue was way worse than I thought. In fact, I learned that I was far more evil, far more unfixable than I dared to, to even consider. I also learned that Jesus loved me with a deeper, more passionate, more giving love than I could have ever imagined. I learned that he willingly made himself a captive so that I could be liberated. He said, take me. And when he was in the garden saying to these soldiers, let these men go, he was also thinking of me and saying, let that young man in 1997 go free. I learned that Jesus died the death that I was supposed to die because of my sin and that on the third, he rose, third day, he, he rose again to new life to give me his life. Galatians 5, for freedom he has set us free. And in September of 1997, I wasn't just forgiven of the death of my old life. I was granted liberty for my new life. And the last 21 years have been a wonderful adventure of faith that he's granted me. Liberty or in other words, freedom, is what Jesus alone gives. So how do I get it? And when I've got it, what do I do with it? How do I get it? And when I've got it, what do I do with it? Thank you for asking. When we're talking about liberty, I want to examine these two questions. And I have two quick points and thoughts about Christian freedom. Christian freedom is firstly about what you receive and not what you achieve. So before you go on from here trying to be a better Christian or to perform better, know that a gift given is not the same thing as a gift received. We have to receive something from Jesus before we try to live out his freedom. We have to get it first. Listen to this story from the book Miracle on the River Kwai. Ernest Gordon was a British soldier captured in, by the Japanese in World War II. And he was made to work with thousands of others on what was called, and what would, have been, what would go to be called, the Death Railroad, which was a valley on the River Kwai in Thailand. The prisoners of war were made to work on that railroad in conditions so awful that they estimate that 2,000 prisoners died for every five miles of railroad that was built. It got so bad that Ernest Gordon in his memoirs said that the men were all at each other's throats and it all went back to the law of the jungle. He said, quote, death was everywhere and its conditions worsened. Our lives became poisoned by selfishness, hate, and fear. Formerly, we had huddled together because of our fears, believing that there was safety in numbers. We'd we'd still shown some consideration for one another. Now that was all gone, completely swept away. Existence had become so miserable, the odds so heavy against us, that we existed just to survive. We lived by the rule of the jungle, red in tooth and claw, and evolutionary survival of the fittest. It was a case of, I look out for myself and and to hell with everyone else. 
But one afternoon, something happened. A shovel was missing at the end of the day. The officer in charge became enraged. He demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. And when no one in the squadron volunteered that they had taken the shovel, he got his gun out and threatened right then and there that if the shovel wasn't produced, he would shoot everyone on the spot and kill everyone. Right then, a voice called out, and a man stepped forward and said, I took it. This officer put his gun away, took his own shovel. He didn't seemingly care about finding the shovel that this guy claimed to have. He just took this prisoner and beat him to death with his shovel in front of everyone else. But then they went back and did a second count of the tools as they were accustomed to doing. There had actually been a miscount of the first check. There were no shovels missing. Gordon says, The word spread like wildfire through the whole camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save everyone else. The incident had a huge effect. We began to treat each other like brothers. Another man was caught trading with the local people, the ties, for medicines for another dying comrade. That man, caught trading, was sentenced to death, but he submitted to it, reading from a little Bible and cheering up the chaplain right before his own execution. Death was still with us, no doubt about that, but we were slowly being freed or liberated from its destructive grip. Now later it describes that when the Allied forces came and overtook the Japanese forces, the prisoners stood in front of their former captors and protected them from being harmed or killed. What happened? Someone they saw dying in their place changed them. And now they were able to do for others what had been done for them. They were able to give something because they first received something that they couldn't have earned or worked for. And this is what Jesus means when he says, let them go free. He has to step forward and be taken captive and take our punishment so that we can see and receive. Freedom is firstly about what you receive, not what you achieve. So stop performing. Die to yourself. Rest in him. And then, freedom is secondly about what you give and not about what you take. You can only give what you first receive. And liberty is not about your ability to take what you want, but to give all that you want and have way more than that in life. That's what liberty and freedom is about when Jesus changes you. Now to illustrate this, I want to share a small plot line from my wife and I's favorite new show, This Is Us. And I won't spoil much But one of the protagonists in the show, the mother, Rebecca, 
left a pleasant life of what she was familiar with, with a high school boyfriend, a, a relatively loving life, and risked that to follow a man that she barely knew, in contrast. But for a totally different paradigm of love than she was familiar with, a self-giving type of love, following this man, Jack, who led her by serving her. She had never seen this before. Now, once she received this sacrificial love from Jack, her life was completely transformed from a life that was bent on pursuing her own goals in life to a life where she could really be liberated to live in a way that receives life and gives to others like her children. Now, I think this is a beautiful story because this story in anything beautiful is meant to be a faint echo of the most beautiful how Jesus gives in such a way that we receive liberty and we become givers of the freedom he gives to us. Finally, divinity only breeds our liberty because of number three, his death. His death. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear, The servant's name was Malchus. This is one of the many times in the New Testament where there is a risk taken by the writer to give a verifiable or falsifiable detail. In this case, you could have gone to Malchus when it was written and said, show me the scar on your ear, brother. And he would have shown you and probably baptized you that day. Verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. And here comes that last question. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup was an Old Testament metaphor for the cup of wrath. In my understanding, it's the just repayment for the corruption of our sin, all condensed down into one drink of judgment and irreversible eternal poison. The Bible says that God is just and teaches that we face a destiny of drinking the cup of our own wrath that we've brought upon ourselves. Only a perfect and incorruptible divine man could drink a cup like this and not eternally suffer and be destroyed. The only problem is Jesus didn't have a cup to drink. He lived a perfect life. He had to be given the cup. Whose cup? He was given our cup. And who gave him the cup? The heavenly Father gave him our cup. And so he asked this question to Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's saying to Peter, Peter, you might think that these bad things that are happening to me are simply injustice to cry out about. You might think that it's the Jews or the Romans. But listen, this is ultimately a plot of my heavenly father that I've willingly entered into. Peter, we are punking the devil right now. This is the cup that the father gives me. It's a greater thing that I'm willing to suffer for. Are you willing to suffer, Peter? Are you willing to drink this cup? He asks him elsewhere. And church, I ask you, are you willing to suffer? 
Are you willing to see the divine providence of God play out in the midst of some of the most unfair circumstances and to joyfully lift up Jesus and to become a giver of life even in the midst of those circumstances? You can only give what you first receive. You need to receive that injustice before Jesus and what he suffered was ultimately not about simply injustice. It was about his divinity. He chose to take our death for the sake of his glory and our liberty. It's not fair. It's divine, bloody mercy. Divinity, liberty, and death. Now in closing, All of us who were schooled in the United States have probably heard the famous quote that also links liberty and death. It's from Patrick Henry. It was a famous rally cry cry for the, uh, the Revolutionary War, and it became a banner of American freedom and still is to this day. And I'm sharing this quote with you as a means of contrast not dishonoring our nation, but putting in context that the freedom that Jesus paid for will never, will never go behind the temporary freedom that we can experience and enjoy in the United States. The freedom that Jesus paid for will always outshine and outlast any other lesser freedom. America says with Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. But Jesus says, give them liberty Give me death, their death. And see, Jesus, Jesus is better than any Roman soldier or any soldier because he doesn't just die for his own countrymen. Jesus dies for his enemies. Jesus dies for us who have terrorized his land, who have brought wrath upon his land. And he drinks our cup so that we can have his life and liberty, and the pursuit of his glory, which is our eternal happiness. Would you pray with me?